a revealing interview with Dr. Deborah Goncher Vinick. This is Unmasking Hidden Crisis of Women in the Opioid Epidemic. Dr. Deborah Goncher Vinick is a renowned film producer and director known for highlighting the overlooked issue of women suffering from opioid use disorder in her groundbreaking feature film, Attention Must Be Paid, Women Lost in the Opioid Crisis. The film brings attention to the unique struggles of women in addiction and questions the allocation of opioid litigation settlement funds. This interview serves as a call for more female-focused addiction recovery resources and urges society to acknowledge the women affected by the opioid crisis. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Let me share with you a little bit more about the guests we have today. Dr. Deborah Goncher Vinick, founder of Diva Communications, is an award-winning documentary filmmaker with six Emmys. Her notable works include And the Gates Opened and Brightness of Noon. Her latest project explores the opioid crisis. She's also worked for Bravo Magazine, CBS, Fox Video, and Scanline Video, authored several books, runs a gratitude-focused website, and serves on the Interfaith Broadcasting Commission. I am so pleased to welcome our guest today, Miss Deborah Goncher. Hello. Hi, how are you? It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute, absolute pleasure. I, I mean, I had the pleasure to seeing your documentary that we're having this show and the discussion about today. And it is, it's a mover. It's a tearjerker. It is definitely, I would say, hands down, it has caused me to feel more compassionate for our fellow human beings. So bravo 
first off, I, I start with that right off the bat because it was that moving, Deborah. So thank you so much for bringing this to the light. And that being said, let's at least start to allow the audience to get to know you a little bit more. Here's April just kickstarting it off so fast. We want to know a little bit more about you. Let's start there. Well, I'll, you know, before I uh, before I jump into that, I have to say it's an interesting film and it's interesting in people's reactions because when I show it to people and I send them a, a link, I can't say to them what you might think, hope you enjoy it because I understand that it's not the kind of film that one quote unquote enjoys. Mm. Um, what I hope it is, is it's the kind of film that moves people and makes an impact. And, and I think that's so important because the real story here is that women have been made invisible. Um, it sounds strong, but it's really true. They just, they're marginalized. They're not there. When you talk about opioids and the opioid epidemic, and people have been talking about the opioid epidemic for quite some time, yeah. but there's no discussion about women. I mean, when I say no discussion, I mean that you can read article after article and the people who they're talking about the stories are all men and they're all stories about, uh, unfortunately, a young man either mistakenly taking fentanyl, getting a pill that was laced, something about um, their heroin use, and often there's a mention about their moms, wonderful women who started foundations in their name to Aww. let people know about opioids. But there's no discussion about the fact that we've lost 200,000 women since the year 2000. They're, they're literally made invisible. And counting. So, and that, I mean, I think that we should highlight that again, Deborah. I'll have you say that number again because it, it's very profound, and I think it needs to be said a few times to really sink in. So, if you wouldn't well, mind, it's a it's a huge number. Two hundred thousand women since the year two thousand have died from um, an opioid overdose. That number, if anyone's listening in whatever city they are, that number is larger than the population in many cities. So we're talking about a massive amount of women. And these are women that are our sisters, our mothers, our friends, our colleagues, our nurses, our teachers. Um, these are women just like me and you. And most people hear about opioid overdoses or opioid misuse and they go oh that's you know not me that couldn't happen to me it could happen because for a long time doctors were prescribing opioids for any ailment a woman came in with i remember give, being given opioids for having a tooth pulled um thankfully uh i didn't take them but opioids were given for as a woman in the film says, for fibromyalgia, for sometimes menstrual pain, for headaches, for tension. And 
the truth is that Big Pharma was telling doctors that it's okay, these are not addictive. And in mm -hmm. fact, they were very addictive. A friend of mine told me that he had recently, in the last year, had a back surgery where two of his vertebrae had to be um, you know, soldered together. And he was given opioids, and in three days, um, they took him off the opioids, and he said the pain from his withdrawal was worse than the pain from the back operation. That was in three days. So most people are given prescriptions, and the doctor gives you this bottle and says, you know, take one every four hours or whatever for a week, sometimes two weeks, and that is a recipe for really the tragedy. Yeah. Oh. We can go in so many different directions here because this is a vast conversation, Deborah. And and of course, something I want to bring to light first off is what I heard in the documentary. Somebody mentioned that you know, you likely know somebody with an addiction. There is somebody that you know, if you really think about it, there's somebody. And that's how that's how large this issue is, is it's an epidemic hands down. And it brings me to, Deborah, to some of the things that I've been uh, been explored with my own life, with my own journey, having autoimmune disease my entire life, and some of the things and the tactics that they wanted to take me to. I recall, and, and it doesn't really have a ton to do with opioids specifically, but medication in general and, and how it really has an effect on our bodies. And I remember there was one point that I, I, I took a picture of it and I wish I somehow it got lost, but I did have a picture at one point. I had two hands, both hands full of medication that I was taking. And I came to a moment where I was like, I don't want to do this because you have to take a medication to take a medication to take a medication. And, and I didn't want it anymore. And I did a really dumb thing and I, and I got off of them cold Turkey. Well, the result of that, and thank God I have a really gracious mother who, who took such good care of me. And I had, my kids were little at the time too, but, um, the withdrawals were so bad that I locked myself in my bathroom for three days, Deborah, three days. And because I didn't want to be on that medication. And I was just so, so convinced that I was going to not ever take all of those again and that I was going to get through it, that I did eventually, but it wasn't without this, this horrific time period of locking myself in the bathroom. So I stayed away from my children because because you turn into a monster, basically, you, you are not your real self, your true self. And I think that a lot of that is the case with, with these cases that we have these, they're not them, and it's not their fault. And I think that's a that's a big, big message here is it's not people's, it's not anybody's fault, but it's been the conditioning and the environment and what they've been given. Well, I, I just want women to know that, um, it's it's just amazing and incomprehensible those three days that you must have spent. But I do want women to know that if they're listening, it doesn't have to be that way. So don't do it are, the way that April did it. Don't do it that way. There are um, medications that can help you, and people don't have to 
go through that. And whenever I hear someone's story, I just, I, I understand it because first of all, women don't want to, um, it's so stigmatized. So women don't go, um, if Somewhere. you look at the numbers of women in recovery versus men in recovery, even in proportion, women aren't going into recovery or asking for resources because it's so stigmatized. Yeah. So they don't want to ask and they would rather be in a bathroom and do it cold turkey, which is not what I wish on anyone. Um, they don't have to do it. But unfortunately, there are some states that make it so um, difficult for women that women are afraid of a lot of things. Women are afraid of what's going to happen to my children if I go yeah. into recovery. Who's going to take care of my children during that period? Are you know what I feared the most, Deborah, during that time was I didn't want to be locked up because it makes you your your mental. You're just like I said, you're not yourself. You're you're really you're just not yourself. And yes, of course, I should have done it a different way. Everybody should do it a different way. But I I love where you're going here because I think this is really important for people to know is that when we talk about societal standards and what what we think the world views us as and how we're supposed to show up, we don't feel comfortable going. And consider this, if you're getting the medication from, from doctors to begin with, who are supposed to be authority figures, does it make sense to go back in order to receive help from the people that were supposed to be helping us to begin with? Right. I, I, I agree so much. And I think that this is true also for all of the substance use disorders. So I was I was reading an article the other day that was talking about um, alcoholism. And it was interesting because doctors have no problem saying to you, um, you know, you can go to a doctor and maybe you don't even know the doctor, male or female, and the doctor can say, you know, go behind the curtain and take off your clothes so that I can do an examination and put on this robe. And you'll take off your clothes and put on the robe. But if you ask the doctor, um, did you ask the patient about alcohol and how much alcohol they're drinking? Um, a survey showed that the doctors were going, no, I didn't want to ask. I didn't think that that was my place or I didn't think it was appropriate. They have no problem asking you to take off your clothes. But yet they're um, looking into these other things that may be bothering you, may be impacting your life, they're not asking. And that is a real problem, not only for opioid use, absolutely, but for, you know, any other substance use, misuse, like alcohol. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, that's, it's such a slippery slope. And of course, many of us know, or or maybe not, so it should be mentioned, but a lot of this is tied, addiction is a tied, it's tied to emotion, it's tied to trauma. And so, yes, we we go to substance abuse because we don't want to feel that that trauma anymore. And so, of course, we're doing things in order to not feel anymore. And yet that's all the wrong way, of course. And of course, when if we have an injury, which here, here's the way I see it, Deborah, because it's this vicious cycle. I believe strongly that, uh, you know, 
like uh, stress is the number one killer, right? And if you go deeper, then stress is caused by emotion and feeling. And we can go deeper into the traumas, which, you know, in turn come cycling up into our bodies. And then our bodies have an effect on that because we're remembering and feeling the trauma all the time. And we're in this constant state of stress. And so it shows up in the body through disease or injury. And I want to highlight injury because people don't, don't think of it. It may, maybe makes more sense with the disease, right? But if we're just walking and we end up tripping and falling, it's, it's because oftentimes like there, there's something greater than ourselves that's trying to say, Hey, slow down, stop. You, you need to slow down. You need to lower those stress levels, right? And then we ha- we go into the doctor and we receive medication. And because we were living a life in high stress and trauma, we are easily going to fall into an addictive state because it is it. We've been given something that takes it away right away, and we're feeling really good. And and then it just it just starts another cycle. So it's this, this, these continuous cycle uh, of abuse. And um, tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, there's no doubt that trauma plays an, you know, incredible role. Um, You know, there are many, you you can hear the trauma in many of the women in the film. Um, One woman was, um, had a number of rapes and incest when she was growing up. you know, there was trauma in people's lives, but I also want to point out that genetics is a mm. major component. So yeah. there are a number of women in the film that um, come from a background where their father and in cases their grandfather or their grandmother um, had a problem with generally, it was pre-opioids maybe, but with alcohol, and so this is genetically predisposed. So there are a lot of issues. And that's why I think that it's so hard to do go into recovery um, alone. In fact, I would say it's probably close to impossible. But not only do is medication important, but also a community. Um, I, I just think that it's so hard and, and being alone and not having people to rely on and connect with and help when things go bad and when trauma occurs, perhaps again, perhaps after three years in recovery, you have a very bad relationship that is traumatic. If you don't have this community to support you, to be there, to help you, I think, I think it's extraordinarily difficult. I don't want to say impossible. I just want to say extraordinary. You need a community beside you. Yeah. You know, you beautifully brought that into your documentary because you, you, you shared so many great stories and different backgrounds. And I mean, we even talk about, I say, I say we, like I created it with you, you (laughs) (laughs) highlight stories and talk about people who really had, they said they had this beautiful upbringing and, and they, they said that their childhood was really happy. And then going into teenage years ended up falling into, you know, the, maybe the peer pressure and, you know, the drugs and addiction in that regard, more of the street drugs. And yet you also bring in some, some really incredible stories of 
different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. So I love how you blended in so much of that to, to really highlight and, and pinpoint and hit on, on those different backgrounds where you can relate to such a broad audience. So that was beautiful. And I want to highlight that. And through some of those stories, you talk about, uh, let's, let's go into Native American history where, where they have, you know, extensive generation after generation after generation trauma. And, and it's just intertwined. And then they don't necessarily have that community support. And they're taught when they're younger that they shouldn't be or recognize their heritage and, and such. And so then we walk into a bit of identity and lost sense of self and not feeling like you have community. And, and one thing I really want to touch point on too, which I thought was very profound that was mentioned was when you, and I, and I touched on it a little bit earlier, but you don't want to go and seek help from the people who were never there to help you to begin with. And especially when you're going deeper into generation after generation, it's even more difficult to be able to put yourself out there, be vulnerable to face what, what, what ultimately was harmful to begin with. Right. But on the other hand, the flip side of it is, as Ayanna Jordan um, says, you don't want to air your dirty laundry outside of your community because already outside of your community may be so disparaging that, um, you know, how is outside of your community a safe place? So it's really a bind. You don't feel maybe necessarily safe in your community, but you also don't feel necessarily safe in exposing your community outside. So, yeah. it, you know, it's really, and it, you know, incredible, <clears throat> excuse me, incredible catch 22. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that someone said, we were showing the film out um, in Nebraska at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And after the screening, um, someone said something which I thought was really, really interesting. And the question or the comment was that they really appreciated that not only did we, um, tell the stories of women who were prescribed opioids, but we told the story of women who, um, as many of us have done, tried recreational drugs at some point in our lives. And, um, you know, she, the woman who was commenting about that said she really appreciated that we weren't judgmental about it, that these were all women who had, for whatever reason, trying something that they never imagined would be a problem, or they were given it by their doctor, or they, you know, had a prescription. All of these things, and through many reasons, whether it's genetics, trauma, combination, just um, physical tolerance grew, and then it was too far to, you know, to go back. All of these reasons that women start misusing opioids, all of them are valid and shouldn't be stigmatized. We have a tendency to blame the woman. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't mm. have done that. I mean, I have to tell you, most people I know, um, including myself, of course, you know, try drugs at a certain point in their life. And I know when I was trying drugs, it never even dawned on me. I had no clue that that I could wind up being addicted or that if I smoked pot, 
that it could be laced with something that would kill me. Mm. That was never something that crossed my mind ever, ever, ever. So now we have people dying because fentanyl is laced into everything. And um, people are taking these pills, their physical tolerance. They just, they're not trying to get high as as Marv Seppala says. Um, Nobody is getting high from this anymore. They're just trying to stave off um, physical withdrawals and feel okay. Um, and and we kind of, as a society, have just mit, you know just you know been so pejorative in our feelings about oh it's their choice. No, it's not their choice. Uh, you know, long term use recircuits the brain. It's a disease, yes. and so we wouldn't um, be so dismissal dismissive of somebody who has diabetes or who has cancer and yet with opioid use disorder we are so judgmental and and negative and stigmatizing yeah it's uh it's really really rough and i so i heard a lot during the documentary that i i heard it said a number of times by different people that you interviewed that they knew they couldn't turn back. And I found that an, to be an interesting statement because there was, there was a, I, I, maybe at least two, I think maybe three people who said something very, very close to that, that they knew that there was no going back, that the drugs were that strong. So you have this side of you, this conscious part of you that's saying, I know this is wrong. I know what I'm doing is wrong but I can't stop myself. It's this, the, the machine that has taken over and it is just on auto. Right. Right. And And the person who says that exactly in those words is Rebecca, who says exactly that in those words, great upbringing, wonderful family, all of that. And then, you know, she was turned on to opioids and then her boyfriend got her involved with heroin. And then she she knew it was too late. There was no turning back. Yeah. Uh, so that being said, you've interviewed, you, you've done extensive research on this. Did you say five years, Deborah, that you've been yes. working on this project? Exten- extensive research. Extensive research, <laughs> numerous interviews. You've traveled the country. What have you seen and found that has made the biggest impact? When somebody is saying, you know, that's it. There's no turning back. Um, and, and this is likely going to kill me. They know this, they go in knowing, but there are some people that come out on the other end where they do receive an intervention, where they do receive help. What have you seen that has been the most helpful for people? Is there an extent of time? Is it kind of being locked up and and surrounded by community? What, what really have you seen the greatest change in for a turnaround? Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. 
and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Well, first of all, I think that unfortunately, and this is such a downer, uh, you know, I'm loath to say it, but I feel that in many respects, the situation is actually worse than when I began the film. Um, And I say that because there are so many places that have closed down that were specifically dealing with women. Um, There are places in, in Chicago, there are places all over the country that had specialized programs for women and specialized programs for pregnant women and women who had given birth and many of them had closed down. Um, Where I see hope is a place that I I always talk about and it's almost like I, I laugh, I say, you know, something about I should just go out with, you know, neon signs. Um, there are places, very few of them, a handful of places like um, a place called Maddie's Place. Maddie's Place is a transitional facility for women who have given birth. And so women who have given birth and their baby probably is, if it's opioids, what's known as a NAS baby, neonatal syndrome, um, but they could be on another substance. And what Maddie's Place does is they take the mother and the baby and they provide a place for them to get better. And so they live at Maddie's Place um, and um, Maddie's Place helps them both with the baby and with um, any recovery program and really sees them through um, a period of time. And Maddie's Place opened in October of 22 with like six rooms for babies and their moms. And now they have um, so many more. And they they had like maybe 10 people working for them. They have 75. They're expanding and they have really amazing success stories. Um, One of them is in um, Listen to the Silence Part 2. There's a lovely woman named Stephanie who... um, you know, had, uh, was addicted to, she was doing heroin and meth and, um, she had her baby and went to Maddie's place. And now she is actually, they closed her case out of, um, CPS. So they, you know, they closed the case and said, um, her and her baby are doing great. And, um, you know, those are the success stories I see, but Maddie's place is one place. I think there maybe are four or five others in the country. In the country, when there needs to wow. be hundreds of more in the country, there needs to be. Um, yeah. But the recovery is absolutely possible. But you need to um, find the people who are going to help you. A community wow. and a recovery and medication, and those things are there. And you you can't let the stigma of you know that you're not a good mother. I'm cleaning it up for you. Screw that. You are. If you're a mother and have had a baby, you and your baby are the most important thing, and your recovery is the most important thing. Your baby should never be taken away from you. 
It is a major trauma for both you and your baby. And there are places that can help. And, And I see hope in that. I can see how much it lights you up. You definitely should be wearing some neon signs. I think they make those Amazon order. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a good no, idea. I'll look into it's that. Beautiful. I I love that you that you talk about that because I like to believe that there's always hope. That's why I do the wellness driven life show is because I believe that when we tell our stories that we are able to to relate to other people where they can say me too and be inspired to better themselves. And, and when you have your first child, you learn what to die for means. And there is this switch that happens to people when, when that new life comes into the world. And so I agree with you. And it, and it's very disheartening to know that there are, there's programs out there to house you while you're pregnant in order to help maintain the, you know, the drug intake during pregnancy. However, then it's, then it's shut down and then women choose not to go because they know they have this issue, but, but they don't go all together because they're like, well, they're going to take my child from me and I don't want that. And, and it is just, it's just this horrible point. So I love that you bring up Maddie's place. Is that what you called it? And that it's in Spokane, Washington. And it is really, I just think they are um, superheroes. I really do. I think they've done an amazing job. And uh, the people there, the woman who um, really started it with um, another person, a man named Sean Cross, and the woman is a nurse named Trisha Hughes. And she has um, nurtured babies. I mean, when I first met her, she had a baby attached to her. And she was bouncing this baby um, for the entire time I was talking to her because there is a, and there's a study that's done that, that talks to this, which is that um, a program of, um, and I now I can't remember, but it's a program of nurturing and keeping close and mm-hmm. uh, sleep and feeding. You can literally get, take that neonatal baby, that NAS baby, and um, and, and get them through their withdrawals because that baby's going through withdrawals. And I think in the first Maddie's mm. was open, they only had to use um, some um, uh, methadone on with one baby. And they've graduated, I don't know, 35, 45 babies through their method of just keeping the baby close, bouncing the baby, feeding the baby, sleep, keeping lights down and all of this stuff. They've managed to do this. and. Um, you know, they, you know, listen, I think we need programs like this for women who are suffering traumas, women who have suffered child abuse, all of these things. We need specialized programs, which of course brings me to my real getting on my, my soapbox, which is that people know about the opioid epidemic and they may have heard that there's been settlements of 54 billion, that's with a B, $54 billion that drug companies and pharmaceutical, you know, pharmaceutical companies and retail stores like a CVS or a Walgreens or things like that are paying $54 billion. And that money is to be split up for all the states and paid out over, yes, I know it's a long time, a 17 year period. That means that every state is getting money 
to be used for resources to help people. And I want everyone listening to this um, podcast to look into how the money is being spent in their state and really demanding that the resources be allocated, a good part of them be allocated for women-specific needs, whether it's pregnant women, whether it's postpartum women, whether it is older women. The increase of opioids that are prescribed to women over 65, that has increased astronomically. Um, Women with trauma, women with historical or generational trauma, there needs to be resources specifically put aside for these women, and we need to demand it. $54 billion, I'm going to be honest with you, I can barely grasp how much $54 billion is. The only thing I can tell you is that there is a small YouTube video online where somebody counts out grains of rice to give you a sense of how much a billion is or $54 billion. And you can take your whole keyboard and you can put it in this big mound of rice and you'll have a sense of just how much money it is. It wow. has to go for women. Not all of it. I'm not a pig. It ha- A major portion has to go for women. <laughs> I love that you have a sense of humor as well, Deborah. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and. I really like the concept of this this housing that has been created that you describe and how it really brings in all of those essential things, those pieces where it's loving environment, it's a safe environment, it's an environment full of community and that human connection. And right. also with, with children, with our babies, that connection piece. And you're right, there's many numerous studies out there of and that's what I love to preach is that we are more powerful than you ever could imagine, but that where we can, we can really, the human body is so amazing to be able to heal itself through that loving human connection. It is essential. We, um, we definitely need that. So if we contact, um, how would you say, like, what would be the best way to go about that where somebody can really do some good. Now you're saying maybe contact local officials and, and advocate for women specific needs right. so funds to be allocated. There's an amazing resource. Uh, and I understand completely why nobody would want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's an amazing resource, which is called the opioid settlement uh, litigation settlement tracker. And what it is, it's a, you know, if you're not interested in it, it's a real bore, but it's a lot of information which basically says every single state and then tells you how the state is apportioning the money. And basically states apportion it one of three ways. The state holds onto the money and apportions it themselves. The state takes some of it and gives the rest to counties, or there's a third entity that's set up let's say it's like um, the Bureau of Opioid Resources. And you, every single state does this, and you can find out how your state is dealing with this big gob of money. And once you know that, call your local, you know, your person that represents you, not only in your state, but certainly, um, you know, federally, and say, I want my, I want, resources for women. 
I want you to be looking at what we can do, what specific programs can be initiated for women, whether it's trauma-based programs, what kind of counseling, behavioral counseling, and psychological counseling. What about, as I've said, pregnant women, postpartum women. What about women who are single mothers and have a seven-year-old child? There is less than 1% of the facilities in the United States that will take that mother. Imagine wanting to go into recovery and you can't because you have no place to go because no one will take you because you have a child. And, and here's the rub. If it's a boy child, I think the, the cap is maybe seven. Anything over seven, there's probably no or maybe one facility in the entire United States will, will take you. There are liability issues. They'll come up with all sorts of things. But the bottom line is, if you're a single mother with a child, you have a hard time going into recovery. No, basically, no one will take you. Deborah, how, what, in your personal opinion, how do you think that we got to this point? Do you have a, a theory on that by chance? How did we get to the point of? Yeah, of lack of services, of of this lack of, um, understanding or acceptance or service to women specifically and children with this particular topic? I would say in my personal opinion, I have a line for one of my posters, um, which is that money has been divvied up by men for men. And so what you see is that in the majority of um, whether it's state or federal, the majority of the people making those decisions are men, and they are making decisions about resources that wind up being for men. And um, no one's saying, well, what about a mother with a child? You know, I, I have, you talk about humor, I have this kind of joke, but that's not a joke, which is that if you're a man who has, who suffers from opioid use disorder, I don't know of any place that will relieve you of parental rights. So if you suffer from opioid use disorder and your wife has a child and the child, you know, um, and you as the father test positive, um, they don't go ahead and take your child away from you. I've, I've tried to look up in any state if that's ever happened. Hmm. Maybe it has. I can't find it. Yeah. But half the states will take away your rights as a mother. Yeah. What is that, Deborah? What is that? Right. What, what is that? As Rosa, Rosa said in the film, who does that? That's her line. <laughs> I quote her all the time. Who does that? I, I, uh, I, I'm going to start saying that too. Who does that? I don't get it. And, you know, though, um, you are the voice. We are the voice by being able to talk about this. And I think that really that's where the real power is, is, is when we start to talk about it, when we share the stories, when we live in this incredible day and age in history, that we are able to broadcast this out to a worldwide audience. And so that makes it brilliant and beautiful. And so the more that we talk about it, the more stories that we share and you with your incredible talent in creating these documentaries, Thanks. so moving. Oh my gosh, beautiful work. 
Now you have created a, a few other documentaries as well, which now I have to go watch those too, because I'm like, this, this lady has got some talent and I love a good documentary. I mean, that's, that's definitely, obviously I do because I interview people. Sure. And so, so it's, it's right up my wheelhouse. So, but that being said, what, what got you personally so inspired about this topic, Deborah? Well, we, you know, we have been, this is our 21st documentary. Um, and we have covered many um, social justice issues. And, um, you know, as any mother will tell you, I am not allowed to tell you which is my favorite because I don't have any favorites or so I say or believe. Um, but, you know, there, there's no doubt, excuse me, my ear uh, pieces just, um, there's no doubt that um, the films we've made about women, um, you know, really touch a chord for me. So a film we did a number of years ago is called Beauty of Their Dreams, and it's about girls' education. And we shot in Uganda and Rwanda, and um, we talked about how educating girls is life-changing. It's life-changing for a country and the economics. It's obviously life-changing for the girls. Um, and religions do not actually say you can't um, teach a girl. There, there, there is no religion that actually writes that, although um, men will say that that's part of the religion. That's actually not true. Um, and I, 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 we started doing these many years ago because these were issues, many issues that, that you know, there's an expression in Hebrew, which is tikkun ha'olam, which is repairing the world. It's the mm -hmm. way that I feel that I can help or try to repair the world. It's to talk about these and tell the stories of people who are impacted. So we, we've talked about intimate partner violence and, um, and mm. how faith needs to address it. We've talked about food challenges in the United States, which is really impossible to imagine that people are still being, are still suffering from food, you know, uh, the challenge of having enough food. We've talked about um, medicine and healthcare. We've taught, we did two part series on immigration and uh, asylum seekers. Um, and that was the film that we did before this film um, and we started this before the pandemic and then the pandemic came and we had to stop. And then as soon as we felt we were able to film, um, even if we started driving to places, we drove to Peoria, Illinois, because we wouldn't get on a plane um, to film the stories in Peoria. So um, I think that I think that there are many different types of documentary filmmakers. I know I don't do art. I don't do biographies generally. Um, I focus on social justice issues that I really feel passionate about. And I feel passionate that women um, have historically just not been given the resources and the um, as I say in the beginning, nothing really is designed for women, whether it's these earpieces, they definitely weren't designed for a woman's ear and mind. And the iPhone wasn't. And the, you know, the way offices and armor and all of these things, the list goes on running, you know, outfits, 
everything was designed with a male body in mind, not for a women, woman's body. And, you know, without trying to sound too um, uh, right on women, we have to take back control of our lives and we have to demand that resources go to women. And right now, those resources need to go to women who are suffering from opioid use disorder, opioid misuse, but some people want to call it opioid addiction. We need to put the resources for these women. So I'm curious, can, can people access some of these touch points through your website? Well, absolutely. So if they go to the website, there'll be information about um, at least, you know, five or six films. We have other films archived because it's, it's a lot of films. Um, and, um, you know, they can, as she said, proving her point again about earlobes and ears. Um, <laughs> they can certainly, you know, um, reach out to me. Um, there's, a, you know, a, an email address and they can see some of the other films um, that we've looked at. I mean, one of the films that probably um, I think had a, a long-term impact and we've we did it quite some time ago and people are still writing about, which is called I Believe You, um, Faith's mm -hmm. Response to Intimate Partner Violence. And it was the, probably the, one of the hardest films I've ever done because mm -hmm. most women did not want to be shown on camera. Yeah. And so we're talking about a visual medium and people either are afraid or whatever and that they can't be shown on camera. And I filmed in Rwanda and Uganda without electricity. And I still say that that film, I believe you, is the most difficult film I've ever done. Yeah. Wow. Deborah, you are you are making such a huge impact through these stories that you're bringing in and the testimonies that are coming through. It, it's it's really profound life work. I love that you're here talking about it on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you so much for being here and sharing that. And, uh, you know, as far as, you know, domestic violence goes, I that has a, a place in my heart as well. When I was in law enforcement, that was most of our calls, most of our calls that yeah. we responded to. And, and it's such a huge huge issue so it was it was a really painful i mean it's the only documentary that when i was filming i wondered that i was actually going to start crying while somebody was talking mm. and um it it just was a film that um you, you mentioned something else about how there a number of women in this film talked about once they they knew it was wrong but they were already too well out of, I must've interviewed a lot, a lot of women for that film, but almost all of them said at some point that they walked on eggshells. It, it, it looked like that they had a script. So many people use the phrase that they were so scared at certain points that whatever they did was going to cause an explosion that they, they just walked all the time. And I left that film thinking about that that experience was just over and over all of the country, women talking about this. It was really quite, hmm. yeah. 
And I, yeah. thank, I thank you so much for having me on. I will talk to anyone and everyone about this. I want to go to Washington and speak to, you know, lawmakers in Washington. I know that everyone's busy. I know everyone has a long agenda. But these are, as you said, these are our mothers and our sisters yeah. and the people we work with. These aren't the other, whatever the other is. This is us. This is us. And we've got to help each other and we've got to help ourselves. Yeah. We're all connected. We're all Absolutely. here for each other. You know, and I and I got to say it again before we part, uh, Deborah, that your your documentary really brings this this sense of uh, compassion. It brought a sense of compassion out of me that, you know, sometimes it's it's hard to want to go there and it's easy to to back out and to, because it, it can become overwhelming, right? When we think about all of the weight of the world of the problems that, that is going on and to, to just, but, but you brought me to a place in this moment in time where I just felt this immense amount of compassion and this feeling of connection, which isn't easy, believe it or not, folks, is not easy to get to me. I mean, I'm a very loving and caring person. And sometimes I feel like, well, you know, that everybody has a choice. And so it's difficult to accept the, the excuses, right? But you just brought me there. And so I want, I want to make sure that I'm very clear on that, that you did an incredible job. Thank you so much. That really, that really means a lot. It's a lot of work to do these documentaries. It's not Michael Moore with Michael Moore money or something like that. It's a lot of work. So it means a lot that you saw that in the documentary and you feel that way. Really yeah. means a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Deborah, it's been awesome to have you here on the show. Is there anything else you want to share with us today? Um, you know, I, I just want to, you know, again, say that, you know, we're all connected and, and I'm going to tell a very fast story, which is how one of the stories came into my life. Um, and I was on a plane coming back from shooting um, in Seattle. And uh, it, I was so uncomfortable because I had years ago suffered a compression fracture from a horse, uh, of, of falling from a horse. And I was on the plane coming back, a uh, red eye, and I was talking to the um, the flight attendant and she said, what are you doing in uh, this area? And I told her we were working on this film and we had been filming a part of um, the Muckleshoot tribe. And, um, and she said, oh my goodness, a friend of mine lost her daughter a year ago. And um, would I be interested in including her story? And I said, mm -hmm. I, I would, but we're really done filming. We're editing now. Thank you so much. But she said, well, could I have your card? And I said, of course. So I gave her my card and I really didn't think about it. And a month later, I was getting on a plane, coming back from vacation, and I got an email from the mother of that young woman who had passed. And we set up a Zoom. And three days later, I was on a Zoom with her. And she spoke to me about 45 minutes and told me the tragic story of her daughter. And she said, you know, you know, can you put, can you include this? And I said, we're really done shooting. And after 45 minutes, I said, okay, um, we're going to go ahead and come out to California and, and film this. I felt it was important 
for women to see this. I felt it was an amazing story, a painful story, a story that still makes me cry. And I can tell you, I've seen my own film 800 times already from editing it, and it still brings me to tears. And it's still a waste of a wonderful, precious life. And I really do believe, as you said, if we can all connect together, and and I'm not trying to be, you know, pie in the sky, but if we can work together, if we cannot judge each other, if we can understand that forces, disease often impacts us and reach out to each other, I think we can make a difference. I hope we can. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the beautiful Deborah Vinick, and most importantly, not only listen and hear this incredible story that she stories that she is bringing to light, but check it out. And, and more importantly than that, see what you can do uh, about the situation, because there's a lot of things that we can do. And so I think just those tiny little steps, because we do all have busy lives and it is easy to push it off the grid, but, but what could it possibly mean if you took that little step? So thank you again so much. I, I want to make sure everyone knows where to find you. I've aired it here. For those of you listening in, everything is going to be in the description below. All of the guest information is always there in the Wellness Driven Life Show, www.vivacommunications.com. Easy peasy. Again, that's www.vivacommunications.com. Check it out. Check out what this incredible woman is creating in the world all of the inspiring stories. And you know that you know someone that could benefit from listening, if not yourself. So I want to thank you again, Deborah, for being Absolutely. here on the Wellness Driven Life Show. I'm so excited. This is going to be, uh, the second part is going to be uh, airing on ABC affiliated stations on the 12th. So in a few days, is that correct? Beginning on the 12th. So people need to just go to the website, which is so much like yours. It's almost eerie. Um, go to the website. There is a list of um, the stations and you can check to see when it's airing in your neck of the woods. Yeah, it starts on the 12th, but stations can air it and we'll be airing it for the next six, 60 days. Perfect timing. Perfect yeah. timing. I love that. Okay. Well, without further ado, thank you again, Deborah, for being on the show. Thank you so much for all of you tuning in. Without you, the show wouldn't be possible. And so thank you so much. And thank you, Deborah. Goodbye for now. And we will see you all next time. Thank you.